This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 22, French Post-Structuralism, Derrida and Deconstruction. So I'm going to take you, you know, into the heart of postmodernism today. And then on Wednesday, we're going to move over to the eastern part of Europe. And I'm going to tell you a story of a kind of resistance to postmodernism. And then next week's lectures will be a little bit different because I'm going to be bringing together strands from the whole course. Um, first in a narrative way, and then the last class um, in a more conceptual way. Um, Derrida, for those of you who haven't read him before, is hard. Um, in, in a somewhat similar way to the way that Heidegger is hard, because he's kind of inventing his own language, except in his case in French rather than in German, some of it inspired by German. So if you pick it up and you read a sentence and you say this is completely impenetrable, don't panic. Um, you may have to read it a few times, you may have to listen to this lecture more than once, um, but it will, you'll eventually get some of the main points. And don't let his very fancy language confuse you. I'm going to try to speak to you as colloquially as I can today in very un-Derrida-like language to try to make this as accessible as possible. But I remember when I was in graduate school, Derrida was like, we all wanted to read Derrida because that was like, that was when it got the hardest and then you felt like you were part of the initiated, if you could understand. Um, there are two questions I want you to keep in mind as we kind of enter the heart of postmodernism. So postmodernism is going to be this large rubric, you know, of a way of thinking about the world that is going to come up in particular after 1968. It's going to be a kind of break from a lot of modernist thinking. And then there's post-structuralism, which is a somewhat kind of more specific form of postmodernism and the archetypal form. And then there's deconstruction, which is Derrida's particular methodology and philosophy within post-structuralism. So you can see them as kind of as different layers of the whole thing. Deconstruction is going to be the example par excellence in some sense of what postmodern thinking is. And there are two big questions um, that are going to structure our entry into postmodernism. One of them is, can we replace God? Which you remember from the beginning of the course. The short answer is going to be no. Um, and the second question is, can we ever escape from Hegel? And these are related questions. Um, and there's not gonna be so much optimism about that either, but there's going to be a lot of attempts to escape from Hegel. You know, so there had been a kind of struggle against God, and we're going to get a struggle against Hegel that's related. Um, okay, I know it's been a long time since Foucault, because you had Thanksgiving break in between. Hopefully you all ate a lot of cookies. Um, I made a lot of cookies. One thing I tend to tell my students is that, like, in this grotesquely imperfect world, what the Polish poet Adam Zagajewski called our the mutilated world, um, one of the very few sources of perfection is the recipe on the back of the Toll House chocolate chips. <laughs> you know, and so I like, try to take advantage of that once in a while and focus in <laughs> on something that's working. And um, so there were a lot of chocolate chip cookies. Okay, so let me take you back to Foucault. 
Um, remember, we, were, we ended with the dissolution of the subject, with Foucault's not having a face, with Foucault's skepticism about the existence of man. And that raises the question of where is agency? Where is responsibility for Foucault? And the short answer is everywhere. Radically dispersed does not mean non-existent. Now for his critics, and this will be true for Derrida's critics as well, everywhere is effectively the same as nowhere. But that's not how both Foucault and Derrida will think of it. They will think of everywhere as everywhere. You know, so where is agency? Agency is everywhere. Agency is how we talk about things. How we talk about things is how we control things. He doesn't do away with agency. He's obsessed with power. He's obsessed with the possibility even of change. What he does do away with is a stable, autonomous subject that is the source of agency and meaning. And for Foucault, subjects are less subjects that construct discourse than they are themselves discursive constructs. This is why I gave you that example from Stephen Kotkin's book um, about uh, Magnetogorsk and that, that famous chapter, Speaking Bolshevik. You know, it's about the discursive construction of the subject. So the move we go into through this linguistic turn in postmodernism is that discourse is less something that reflects reality than it is something that constitutes reality. And you can see this as a bit analogous to the avant-garde idea that art is not something that mirrors the world, it's a hammer to shape the world. Art is not about imitating life, it's about creating life. So discourse is constructive, not reflective. Um, now Foucault, like Derrida, is going to kind of move from structuralism with an interest in integrating the synchronic and the diachronic. So remember, structuralism was very concerned with the synchronic. And that basic dichotomy between the diachronic, the vertical axis, and the synchronic, the axis of simultaneity, that we get from structuralism, that's going to stay with us, except that now we're going to be trying to take it apart. Now, taking it apart and trying to integrate doesn't mean that that distinction no longer exists. We're still kind of preserving it, but now there's a bit of a rebellion against it. Um, There's no certain direction of history once we move into postmodernism. There's a very explicit rejection of that. But at the same time, and much more in Derrida and Foucault, you get the continued presence of some kind of dialectics. Once we've got dialectics, we never really get away from dialectics. You never really get away from anything. Once ideas are out there, they're out there. And they get combined and recombined and negated and turned around and critiqued and embraced in all sorts of different ways, but they don't just disappear. They're always kind of up to something. Um, no one ever really gets away from Hegel. Foucault is normative in the sense that he's not, he's not only being descriptive, he also has ideas about what is good and what is bad. He sees modernity as proceeding towards totalitarianism. He sees a very dark and ominous and insidious side of this move towards transparency, towards the all-knowing, towards the all-understanding. He sees it as a move towards surveillance and control. In any case, you should always be very skeptical when thinkers claim they're not making moral statements. Like when Heidegger claims that his distinction between authenticity and inauthenticity is merely descriptive, you should be skeptical. 
Like it's clearly not merely descriptive. He clearly thinks authenticity is a much higher form. Um, and then the, the question that Foucault is going to be concerned with, and Derrida even more so, is the system closed? Is the structure closed? You know, and as we move from Foucault to Derrida, really from Saussure to Foucault to Derrida, we go back to that chessboard analogy, and Derrida is going to say, life is not a chessboard. The boundaries of the structure are not so clear. There might be more squares. You might be able to add pieces to the board. It's not closed. So there's going to be a pushing back against the chessboard analogy. Um, okay, a couple more things as a kind of introduction to kind of get you into this. Um, the text that I gave you for today, um, Derrida's text was originally presented as a paper at a very famous 1966 John Hopkins conference where Derrida also meets Paul Deman, which I'll get back to in about half an hour, um, and published in 67. It's kind of the founding text of deconstruction, but where this really takes off and where postmodernity really takes off is with 1968. You know, and in particular with the invasion of, of, of Prague, the invasion of the Warsaw Pact, really Soviet tanks invading Czechoslovakia, and the putting down of that experiment of socialism with the human face, which was the symbolic end of Marxism as a deeply felt, passionately believed in philosophy, worldview, ideology. That was the last great structure, the last great narrative. You know, afterwards, the question is what, what comes next? And so there's a non-coincidence of 68 here. The death of Marxism and the rise of post-structuralism are coming up together. Now, communism in practice stays in power in, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union for another two decades. But Marxism, as, as an animated and deeply believed, widespread and passionately felt philosophy really fades after that. Um, and Derrida is going to be the, the emblematic thinker who is standing for what comes next. He's a thinker par excellence who takes things apart as opposed to put them together. So Nietzsche is an important influence here. He provides us, Derrida provides us with no system. It's all taking apart of systems. It's all about taking apart, it's not about putting together. Remember, Hegel puts together, Marx puts together, Derrida takes apart, Nietzsche takes apart. Some thinkers take things apart. Um, he doesn't even, Derrida doesn't even provide us with what Foucault provides us for, which is a methodology. And Foucault provides us with this archeological methodology that doesn't tell us what causes what and doesn't tell us where things were going, but does give us a productive model for how to write history and how to observe certain things we might previously have missed. Derrida doesn't even really give us that. What he does do is he asks us to learn to read differently to think differently, to think about writing differently, to think about reading differently, to think about life as a text. So everything is going to become a text here. Like structuralism made everything about language, everything was analogous to language now. Derrida is going to make everything a text that can be taken apart. Um, he's, as I said, he's very hard to read, especially if you're not used to reading him. 
So go easy on yourself. Be modest in your expectations. It like, will take a while of coming back to him. The language is a little bit like Cicero meets Heidegger. And all those things are, are in Derrida. I mean, you see all the influences. He's reading Husserl. He's reading Heidegger. He's reading Nietzsche. He's reading Cicero. You know, and there are bits and pieces of all the, and Freud, and all those things are kind of coming into play. So you get this structuralist language, you get Heideggerian language, now being is going to be inseparable from language. Um, he's directly in dialogue with structuralism, and he's going to probe structuralism and try to find the weaknesses. He follows Heidegger, and he really likes inventing words and kind of playing with various kinds of grammatical and etymological possibilities that make it virtually untranslatable because he's playing with possibilities that exist in French that then aren't going to exist the same way in other languages. Like Heidegger, there are moments that are really very beautiful and poetic, you know, sometimes even when they're basically incomprehensible. Um, just so if you've started to read him and you don't understand anything so you don't feel too badly about yourselves, I'm going to read you a couple sarcastic comments by famous critics about Derrida. Um, Tony Jutt says in post-war that this was a philosophy of narcissistic obscuritanism. Um, and then he explains, by the time German philosophy had passed through Parisian social thought into English cultural criticism, its inherently difficult vocabulary had attained a level of expressive opacity that proved irresistibly appealing to a new generation of students and their readers. Um, and the phenomenologist um, Robert Sokolowski, who writes a very good introduction to Husserl's phenomenology, and Derrida in many ways comes out of Husserl, and his early work is about Husserl. And at the end of this kind of survey or introduction to phenomenology, Sokolowski says, deconstruction should also be mentioned in a survey of the phenomenological movement, albeit with some embarrassment the way a family might be forced to speak about an eccentric uncle whose antics are known to everyone but whom one tries to avoid mentioning in polite society. So a, a lot of people have found this un unbearable. Um, I, I, was, I was very excited about Derrida when I was in graduate school. And, and at one point, when I, was, I was in Jerusalem, and I went to talk to uh, a literary critic there who, who's work dealing with literary theory, including Derrida, I very much admired. And I came in with all my very eager graduate student questions. And she looked at me and she said, Marcy, Derrida is like adolescence, very salutary. And then we get past it. <laughs> um, I still like going back to Derrida, but my like, relationship to him has, has changed a lot over the years. OK, so who was Jacques Derrida? He was born in 1930. He's an Algerian-born French philosopher of Jewish origin. So there's a lot of biographical material that looks at the marginality of being Jewish, the marginality of being Algerian, the marginality of moving from the colonies to the metropole. Um, I won't get into that right now just because we don't have that much time. Um, he has this very elite Parisian education at the Sorbonne and the Ecole Normale Supérieure. Um, and 
you can commune with this whole period in his life by reading my colleague Ed Baring's book, The Young Derrida, which also involves communing with that famous exam, the aggregation in philosophy, which there seems to be a cult about um, for everyone who's ever studied in Paris and what it means to prepare for it and what it means to prepare others. This is the exam that, that Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre meet studying for, and he comes in first and she comes in second. And it, it's... I'm not a French studies person, but if you are, this is the exam that seems to determine people's lives, and you can commune about that in Ed Baring's book, which is excellent. Uh, the major influences were Husserl, Heidegger, Cicero, Levi-Strauss, psychoanalysis. His post-structuralism really begins um, with a critique of Levi-Strauss, and that's kind of how I'm going to try to take you into this. Um, Post-structuralism is literally post in the sense that it is coming out of structuralism and probing the weaknesses. Um, it is part of what is an attempt to be the decisive break from Hegel, and Derrida is going to constantly be in rebellion against what he feels is the linear, the unidirectional, the Hegelian, all of these things are totalitarian to him. They're connected with the illusion of a transcendental signified, which is essentially a god or an ersatz god, meaning a unified first principle that doesn't exist. And I'll keep coming back to that. The idea that there is some grounding center, some unified first principle, but it does not exist. And that is what is needed to keep structure stable. That's what's needed to keep philosophy in a kind of grounded place. Um, there's, there's a 1979 essay by uh, another French thinker, Jean-Francois Lyotard, called The Postmodern Condition, in which he gives the single most famous definition of postmodernism. Um, the essay is actually very technical and, and involves a lot of the relationship between postmodernity and science, um, including the hard sciences. But the famous definition he gives is, I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta-narratives, which is just skepticism towards meta-narratives, grand narratives that make everything go together and make sense. You know, Postmodernity is about not believing that there is any such. There is any such story, there is any such philosophy, there is any such worldview that's going to sweep everything together and make it make sense and make it hold together. So we're, we're going to be now in this world, which is why it's so hard to get a hold of, that is all about a kind of rejection of a knowable objective truth. And if structuralism says that meaning is in the relationship, it exists, it is not imminent, but it exists only within a given system, but it's nevertheless stable because the structure is stable, post-structuralism will come in and say there is no such thing as a closed system. Life is not a chessboard. The text goes on so to speak, and therefore no stable determinant meaning is possible. And I'll, I'll keep coming back to this from different directions and the hopes that it will start to. So it's all about taking things apart, which is why it's so hard to kind of get your mind around because you're like, where is he going with this? Um, and it's hard to figure out where he's going because what you're really doing is taking things apart. Um, the term deconstruction was inspired by Heidegger, and the important thing I want to put in your head about deconstruction now is that it's not, there's a difference between deconstruction and destruction. 
So it's not just about destroying. It's literally to deconstruct in the sense of to undo, to take apart. It's not just to smash, it's to take apart. And what is being taken apart is stability, is stable meaning, which is decisive, determinate meaning that, that holds itself in place. So nothing is going to hold itself in place anymore. The structuralist binaries are not going to hold. The good and bad, the high and low, the raw and the cooked, those things are not going to hold. They're not going to stay in place. Nothing is going to stay in place. Everything is going to be moving all the time. Um, so he begins here with a critique of Levi-Strauss, and he begins with a critique of, of a certain passage in Levi-Strauss's autobiography where he is looking at the relationship between writing and speech um, in various primitive cultures. And he says that Levi-Strauss makes the argument that the introduction of writing you know, in these primitive cultures that he is observing you know, as infiltrating as an anthropologist, that this introduction of writing is a moment of a loss of innocence, he says, um, of the introduction of hierarchy, of control, um, even of violence, a kind of corrupting influence. Um, and the idea is that speech is somehow immediate and authentic, whereas writing is a step removed from authenticity, it is mediated. It's mediated and therefore it is less authentic and more artificial. Um, and what Derrida is going to do is he's going to try to take apart this binary. So the methodological impulse is you find a binary like speech versus writing and then you start to take it apart. You know, and he says, okay, both the Saussure in particular and but Western metaphysics more generally since the ancient Greeks has privileged speech over writing. You know, Aristotle said spoken words are symbols of mental experiences and written words are symbols of spoken words. So you're another degree of separation from the real thing when you're writing as opposed to speaking. Um, and Derrida says, okay, speech was traditionally privileged over writing on the analogy that presence is superior to absence. And speaking suggests that the speaker's real self is immediately present, that you have some access to psychic interiority, some closeness to the inner truth of individual consciousness, that speech as opposed to writing is a kind of guarantor of presence and authenticity. Presence, though, Derrida says, is an illusion because the speaking self is not even really necessarily present to itself. So now you see Freud, right? The self is hidden from the self. There's no direct access. Part of the self is always hidden from the self. And so Derrida sees both speech and writing and presence and absence more generally as binaries that need to be deconstructed. He says language is more about absence than presence than presence. Meaning is all about difference. The other absent signifiers are essential to the meaning of one given. So what is writing? Um, and Derrida starts out in a very Derrida-like way, but saying, what is writing? But the question of origin is at first confounded with the question of essence. One must know what writing is in order to ask. Um, knowing what one is talking about and what the question is, where and when writing begins. What is writing? So you also see echoes of Heidegger's hermeneutic circle, right? Like that, what, what is being? Well, you have to already have a preliminary idea before you try to figure it out, okay. 
So the answer, Derrida says, writing like difference, like language is always already, the always already is taken from Heidegger, always already there at the origin, which means there is no pure origin. You're always already thrown into it. So when does writing begin always already? Um, and he goes on to kind of enlarge the concept of a text so that the concept of writing is enlarged. It's encompassing not only absence, but presence. Presence and absence can no longer be disentangled from one another, and everything becomes a text. So Dostoevsky's novels are a text. You know, the red and the black is a text, but the labels on Campbell soup, uh, Campbell's soup cans are also a text. Um, we, you can kind of also see an analogy here that you get in Levi-Strauss's all culture can be understood as a language. And Derrida is saying, all life can be understood as a text for analysis. And I'll, I'll read you a passage from an, in, an interview done with him at Stanford 25 years ago. And he's, he's asked to define deconstruction. It is impossible to respond, Mr. Derrida said. I can only do something which will leave me unsatisfied. But after some prodding, he gave it a try anyway. I often describe deconstruction, Derrida says, as something which happens. It's not purely linguistic, involving text or books. You can deconstruct gestures, choreography. That's why I enlarged the concept of text. Mr. Derrida did not seem angry at having to define his philosophy at all. He was even smiling. Everything is a text. This is a text, he said, waving his arm at the diners around him in the bland, suburban-like restaurant the diners blithely picking at their lunches, completely unaware that they were being deconstructed. Um, there's a, a kind of academic novel written or kind of parody of academia at the height of deconstruction written by the, an English professor at Stanford, John Leroux, in the 1990s called The Handmaid of Desire. Um, and he offered the reader this vision of this brave new academic world that has been enlightened by, um, by deconstruction. So I'll, I'll quote you this passage too, which is satirical, needless to say. This department, the department of theory and discourse, was his dream. It would revolutionize university studies. It would include complet, mod thought, and all the little language departments, French, Russian, Spanish, you name it. It would take on all written documents, equally with absolute indifference to the author's reputation or the Western canon or the nature of writing itself, whether it was Flaubert's Bovary or a 1950 tax form or a label on a Campbell soup can, and subject them all to the probing, thrusting, hard-breathing analysis of the latest developments in metaphilosophical transliterary theory, wherever those theories might be, wherever they might lead. So let me, let me try to take you for just another couple minutes more into this, how Derrida takes these, these pairings apart. Because um, you can see in this essay I give you, um, Structure, Sign, and Play, that he's very respectful towards Levi-Strauss. You know, he clearly admires him, he's important to him, but he's saying he doesn't go far enough. He doesn't see the tensions of the argument he's making that the bi he doesn't see why the binaries don't hold. And so on the side of the signifier, you know, Derrida is going to say cat is cat because it's not bat or it's not cap or hat. 
but it's also not house and it's not boat or moat. So the differences are infinite. The absences are infinite. And on the side of the signified, good is good because it's not bad, but it's also not many other things. It's also not tall, it's not blue, it's not clean. And so for structuralist linguistics, the relationship between the signifier and the signified might be arbitrary, but the sign still constitutes a unity among a heterogeneity of signs. And Derrida's going to question this unity. It doesn't hold together for him. And he says that in order for that stable unity to exist, there has to be what he's going to call an archaea. There has to be some first principle. There has to be some foundation, some kind of some kind of transcendental signified, some kind of origin, some kind of absolute foundational beginning in order for the sign to constitute a stable unity. You know, and he'll say there has to be a transcendental signified for the difference between signifier and signified to be somewhere absolute and irreducible. And transcendental signified here is what is standing in for God. You know, some first principle that holds everything together, that grounds the system. So modernity was all about an attempt to replace God, and you put history with a capital H in that place, or man with a capital M, you know, or self with a capital S, or the subject, you know, and Derrida's like saying no. No, there's no God, and there's no replacement God, and there's no replacement first principle that can hold things together. And he says that Levi-Strauss, basically he makes this Freudian argument, says Levi-Strauss kind of unconsciously or subconsciously knows this and just isn't ready to admit it. And he says, you know, Derrida says about Levi-Strauss, in effect what appears most fascinating in this critical search for a new status of discourse is a stated abandonment of all reference to a center, to a subject, to a privileged reference, to an origin, to an absolute archaea. And say Western philosophy has always longed for that center, that grounding first principle, the sign that can give meaning to all the other signs. Be it, you know, be it Geist, be it the sacred, be it history, God, the self. And Derrida says, no. No, there's no God, there's no transcendental signified, there's no absolute idea, there's nothing that would allow us to anchor meaning there's nothing that holds meaning in place. So not only is God in particular dead, but the idea that anything can replace God is also dead. There's no origins to ground meaning and there's no telos to direct it. So there's nothing holding things in place. Um, one way to think about this is to call it anti-foundationalism. Um, which is what some historians and philosophers use. There's no, the impossibility of any foundation. And when Derrida uses metaphysical in, in this text, he's using it as a pejorative. You know, for Derrida here, metaphysical is any way of thinking that depends upon a kind of first principle on a foundation. He says, no, there is no foundation. He's not replacing the foundation. He's saying that there can be no foundation. He says, structures need a center, a grounding point, a way to contain endless play. And play is the next important word here. It's again, it's one of these ordinary words that Derrida is going to make into a kind of fancy philosophical world, play. Signifiers are playing off one another. 
without any, any transcendental signified, there's no way to limit that play. And so you get kind of endless play. The absence of the transcendental signified, he writes, extends the domain and play of signification infinitely. I put this on your handout. That's like, that's an, that sentence is an important key to what he's saying. Because the signified, how signifiers signify things is kind of all about a, now a kind of infinitely complex interaction of signifiers playing off other signifiers. Always at ready at play, working with, against, around one another. So meaning is never completely present in the sign. It's also always partially absent. You know, it's partially bouncing around with these other signifiers. It's always in motion. We can never quite grasp it and hold it in our hands. It's always in some way suspended, deferred, still to come. Um, never self-identical. Because there is this infinite chain of signification going on, of signifiers relating to other signifiers, being entangled with other signifiers, you can't kind of cleanly disentangle one signifier, a good or a bad or a high or a low or a blue and a green, from all the other ones, the ones that is not, but the ones that's somehow related to. Um, so it's, language is thus by its very nature unstable. Meaning is dispersed and divided and in flux. So you're casting doubt upon these binaries that are so central to, to structuralism. Be they nature versus culture, the empirical versus the rational, the sensible versus the intelligible. And Derrida will say these binary oppositions are always in some ways ideological constructs. They can always be undermined. They're never as clean as they think they are, as one thinks they are. Um, and I'm going to read you the, uh, the British cultural critic Terry Eagleton's example of man and woman from deconstruction. Again, Terry Eagleton is a very sarcastic kind of anti-deconstructionist critic, um, but the sarcasm also kind of makes, makes clear the methodology. So he's giving the example of man and woman as a binary that deconstruction is deconstructing. And Eagleton says, I put this on your handout as well, woman is the opposite, the other of man. She is non-man, defective man, assigned a chiefly negative value in relation to the male first principle. But equally, man is what he is only by virtue of ceaselessly shutting out this other or opposite, defining himself in antithesis to it. And his whole identity is therefore caught up and put at risk in the very gesture by which he seeks to assert his autonomous existence. Woman is not just an other, in the sense of something beyond his ken, but in other intimately related to him as the image of what he is not, and therefore as an essential reminder of what he is, not only as his own being parasitically dependent upon the woman and upon the act of excluding and subordinating her, but one reason why such exclusion is necessary is because she may not be quite so other after all. What is outside is also somehow inside. What is alien is also somehow intimate. So you kind of get the idea, yes. Some of you are nodding. Some of you are looking very confused. So the sense of things are never exactly as clean and pure as they think. Um, and there, there's a lot of dialectics in here, too. Like, no direction, but a lot of dialectics. Things, things are always being undermined. Meaning is always being undermined. But it's also being, being multiplied. You know, it's also producing itself in infinite variation. 
Um, things are always containing within themselves the seeds of their own negation, but also their own reproduction in all sorts of different forms. Um, so he, you're always taking apart all of these binaries that Derrida considers ideological constructs, be they good, bad, legitimate, illegitimate, rational, irrational, fact, fiction, intellect, intuition, all of these things can be kind of taken apart. So deconstruction kind of gets its original impulse from your unraveling opposites. They're never as purely opposite as you think you are. And a couple of the fancy terms here is, one is difference, um, which comes from combining two, senten two senses of the French verb um, differer. I try to avoid saying anything in French because I can't pronounce it correctly. Um, but what difference means is both difference and deferral. And what that allows Derrida to do is move along the synchronic and the diachronic axis at, one at once. And say meaning is, also, is always different synchronically but it's also deferred in the sense of there's still more of it to come. It's not yet decisive. It's still in process. Um, language never conveys or contains full meaning. Meaning's always both somehow other, you know, and yet to be fulfilled. So it's, what difference does is kind of allow you to kind of sweep that synchronic and the diachronic together. Um, unlike structuralism, which he says can only operate by bracketing history and looking at the synchronic. He's trying to keep the idea of the synchronic and now integrate the diachronic. Um, so meaning is always still to come. It's in some ways still, to def still deferred because life is going on. So there's no way to close things you know, and say, okay, it's over now. This is, this is still, this is what it is. Um, he also uses the term trace which is kind of like a surplus or a, su a supplement or the residue of other potential meanings that are somehow both present and absent or barely present in the signifier, the trace. Um, there's always something more. There's always something that's never quite not there, but also not quite there. Um, signifiers that are not present, but neither entirely absent. So the trace is a kind of residue of other meanings that any given signifier does not appear to have, but on which it may depend for its own meaning. It's something left behind. Um, and all of these things are kind of contributing to the idea that there's no decisive, determinate, once and for all meaning. Um, he uses a term aporia, or double bind, which is the moment when meaning negates itself, language undermines itself, and therefore you're at an impasse, and it seems that no meaning is possible. Um, you're kind of caught between incompatible or contradictory meanings. Um, I like to use the, the example of, of Stalinism, of Stalinist terror and the call for vigilance. So at the height of Stalinist terror, you have a campaign for vigilance. You should always be very vigilant. You should always be watching because the enemy could be anywhere and everywhere, including in your own bed. So you have to constantly be vigilant. But at the same time, there are iron laws of history that are leading us inevitably, inexorably towards the communist utopia. So this is a double bind, and this is an aporia. If the iron laws of history are leading you to the communist utopia, then why do you need to be vigilant? Why do you need to watch out? Why is the enemy so insidious? You know, but the height of the terror was that aporia. 
you know, this, the sense of the enemy is lurking always and everywhere, therefore one must be very vigilant. At the same time, our future is predetermined. Yeah. So how can it be both radically undetermined and radically determined? Um, he also uses a phrase, under, under erasure, <laughs> um, which is a bit like the kind of colloquial scare quotes. It's a way of kind of using a word but not committing to it, using a word and acknowledging its inadequacy. So you kind of use the word, but you cross it out to suggest that you're not really fully satisfied with it. It's a little bit like having your cake and eating it too. Like um, my, my friend, uh, Amelia Glazer, who we went to graduate school together and she's now a professor of literature. And she, she saw Derrida when, obviously when he was still alive and he was doing a book talk about a book he wrote called The Gift of Death. And she asked him to sign the book and he crossed out the word death. He put it under erasure. Now, how you put death under erasures. Um, okay, I wanted to leave um, these, these last 10 minutes to talk to you about Derrida and Paul de Man, um, which I can't resist doing since we're here at Yale, um, but is, is a difficult topic to introduce with Derrida, but I think it's important, and I think it's important today. Um, Paul de Man was a bit older than Derrida. He was born in 1919. Um, Belgian, Flemish-born, French-educated, a very young man, um, 2021, when the Nazis occupied Belgium in May 1940. At that point, Paul de Man became a journalist for Nazi collaborationist newspapers as a young intellectual. Um, from approximately 1940 to 1942. After the war, he emigrated, he went to the United States, he did a PhD from Harvard in the 1950s, and he met Derrida in 1966 at this famous John Hopkins conference on structuralism, which became, in fact, in some ways like the eulogy for structuralism because it's where Derrida presented this structure, sign, and play in the discourse of the human sciences and deconstruction really comes out of that conference on structuralism. It was the founding text of deconstruction. Um, so the two meet in 1966 and they become very close friends and collaborators and colleagues. Um, and it is Paul Deman then who as a professor at Yale really turns Yale into a center especially in the 1970s for deconstructionist literary criticism. He insists that literature doesn't even need a, a literary critic to deconstruct it, it deconstructs itself. Um, his specialty is in English and German romanticism. Um, and he had an almost kind of cult-like following um, among his students. My colleague here, Al Alice Kaplan, studied with him um, and wrote like a very interesting chapters about about that time of being at Yale in the heyday of deconstruction in a beautiful memoir she wrote called French Lessons, which I recommend to all of you. Um, in any case, Paul de Man then dies prematurely of cancer in 1983. And then uh, a graduate student, um, I think a Belgian graduate student who is then doing his dissertation about Paul de Man after his death discovers that he had been a Nazi collaborationist young writer during the war. 
And this was pre-internet, so nobody knew this. It's hard to imagine now where you like Google somebody and everything comes up. But this was like, this was pre-Google, it was pre-internet. You had to actually like sit in an archive with these physical copies of old papers that nobody had or cared about, you know, until this graduate student found them. And then he copied them and then he sent them to Derrida and asked Derrida to respond. Um, and Derrida responded in a very famous, very poignant and kind of heartbreaking long article called Like the Sound of the Sea Deep Within a Shell, Paul Demand's War. And it, it's, some people consider this article to be the bankruptcy of deconstruction, you know, and the obituary for deconstruction. Some people consider it, um, and in some sense, I, I feel both of these things are true, to be one of the most beautiful texts ever written about intellectual friendship. Because it's clear that Derrida is mourning somebody that he loved very much. And it's a text that is written out of despair. It is fascinating and maddening and heartbreaking. And it is striking in its compassion. Um, it's an essay of bereavement. And it's an attempt to find a way not after somebody's death to lose the friendship and the memory of this friendship. And I'll, I'll read you a couple quotes. He says, my feelings were first of all, when he received these articles, that of a wound, a stupor, and a sadness that I want neither to dissimulate nor exhibit. For almost 20 years, I had never had the least reason to suspect my friend could be the author of such articles. And Derrida is going to go on in this text to try to save Paul Demand through deconstruction. He's going to go on to perform a deconstructionist analysis of these anti-Semitic wartime texts, and Derrida's a Jew, and use his own methodology to show that in the end, meaning subverts itself, and therefore no determinate meaning is possible. Language always says something other than what it says. Texts contain within themselves their own contradictions. So he's using this structure of the double bind, of the on the one hand, on the other hand. Um, and he, I'll, I'll quote you a passage of, of Paul DeMond's article um, on, on Jews in contemporary literature from March 1941 that Derrida's analyzing. And this is Paul DeMond here. So that Western intellectuals have been able to safeguard themselves from Jewish influence in a domain as representative of culture as literature proves their vitality. If our civilization had let itself be invaded by a foreign force, then we would have had to give up much hope for its future. By keeping, in spite of Semitic interference in all aspects of European life, an intact originality and character, it has shown its basic nature is healthy. One is more, one sees that a solution of the Jewish problem that would aim at the creation of a Jewish colony isolated from Europe would not entail for the literary life of the West deplorable consequences. The latter would lose in all a few personalities of mediocre value. And Derrida responds to this and says, 
Nothing in what I'm about to say, analyzing the article as closely as possible, will heal over the wound I right away felt when my breath taken away, I perceived in it what the newspapers have most frequently singled out as recognized anti-Semitism, an anti-Semitism more serious than ever in such a situation, an anti-Semitism that would have come close to urging exclusions, even the most sinister deportations. Well, I dare, he writes, to say, on the other hand, in the face of the unpardonable violence and confusion of these sentences. And Derrida goes on, and he says, yes. On the other hand, and first of all, the whole article is organized as an indictment of vulgar anti-Semitism. And because he's Derrida and he's brilliant, and he, he goes through this analysis very slowly, you read it and you feel like, yes, I see what he means. Really, the meaning is unraveling itself and no determinate meaning is possible. And then you walk away and five minutes later, you're like, no, it, it is what it is. It doesn't work. Um, what I find so beautiful and poignant was the depth of the meaning of that friendship. You know, and that struggle that Derrida is laying bare to recover something that was tremendously important to him in a purely not opportunistic way. He could have just cut himself off, but he loves this man. Um, and he makes the case there that he says, deconstruction for me has always represented the least necessary condition for identifying and combating the totalitarian risk. You know, this is an ideology, it's a worldview, it's a philosophy that is originating for Derrida in a leftist critical sensibility that is designed to take apart the absolutist truth claims that led us to places like Nazism and Stalinism. So how now do you reconcile? Um, we'll get back to this um, next week, but let me just leave you with, with a couple quick thoughts. It's sometimes difficult to suspect that Paul DeMond's adoption of a philosophy of aporia, the moment when meaning undermines itself and no meaning is possible, doesn't have a kind of psychologically self-serving aspect to it, um, that when one would like to cut themselves off from a previous self, the idea that there is no such thing as a stable self that holds itself over time, or meaning that holds itself over time, is appealing. Um, for Derrida, deconstruction is political in the good sense. That it, it is our resistance, it is our antidote, you know, it, it is what protects us from the way of thinking the absolutist truth claims that led us to totalitarianism. For Derrida, the idea that meaning is always at play is not an absence of meaning, it's not a nihilism, it's not a everything is possible, doesn't matter what you do to other people. It's a joyous affirmation of creativity, of human potential, of the space, of the space for play. He says, turning towards the lost or impossible presence of the absent origin, this structuralist thematic of broken immediacy is therefore the sad and negative, nostalgic, guilty, Rousseauistic side of the thinking of play whose other side would be Nietzschean affirmation, the joyous affirmation of the play, 
the play of the world and of the innocence of becoming, the affirmation of a world of signs without fault, without truth, and without origin, which is offered to an active interpretation. This affirmation then determines the non-center otherwise then as the loss of the center, and it plays without security. So instead of mourning the lost center, you can rejoice in the opportunity, in the creativity, in the vitality of play. And I want to leave you with this idea because it's a sense of how deconstruction is provocative, it's exhilarating, but it ultimately leaves us dangling in the way the avant-garde was left dangling. You jump off and everything is possible, but there's nothing to hold on to. And that's where, that's where it leaves us, both with that joyousness of possibility and with the nothing to hold on to. And I'll, I'll see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.